Voice of San Diego podcasts are sponsored by the Bob Nelson Charitable Fund, honoring the San Diego Harbor Police Foundation. This is the Voice of San Diego podcast. I'm Nate John. I usually produce the weekly show that you get on this feed. This week, we are dropping special episodes from PolitiFest. That's our annual politics and public affairs summit. We usually hold it in person. It's a whole thing, one big day with a lot of elected officials and candidates and experts to talk about the most pressing things that are happening in San Diego that year. This year, though, It was all virtual, so what you're going to hear are Zoom calls and live streams and virtual debates, but still really important topics and interesting things to know ahead of the election. If you like this show, you'll like PolitiFest. So we'll give you some of the best highlights from PolitiFest here in this feed. Right now, a conversation about police reform with California Attorney General Javier Becerra and Alon Stevens, reporter from The Trace. Thanks for having us. Uh, Thank you, Mr. AG, for being here. So many great questions because, you know, when we talk about criminal justice right now, it's such a poignant topic. And I think in the post-George Floyd world, right, for a lot of Americans, there's this kind of new realization that the America they experience is perhaps not the America that everyone else experiences. And I think that is really can be seen in our criminal justice system. So to start, I think we we really wanted to set the table here. So I wanted to kind of outline some criminal justice facts so we could kind of all be on the same page here. So as it stands right now, America currently incarcerates about 2.2 million people. That's a number that has increased by 500% over the last 40 years. That makes the United States the world leader in incarceration. At the tip of the spear are the police who will arrest about 4.9 million people each year with 80% of those for low level offenses. Police on average kill about 1,000 people a year, well above combined totals for all other wealthy nations combined. And this is just like everyone. We haven't even talked about the people who are the most vulnerable communities, the black and brown communities. And when we bring those stats into the frame, the situation's a lot worse. Black people are five times more likely to be incarcerated than white people. Black men are three times more likely to be killed by the cops, making police violence one of the leading causes of death for young black men. And black children represent 42% of the children detained by the criminal justice system. Outlying all of those things, right, I, I think with so much getting lost in translation, my first question is, is, you know, to the AG, do you understand why people are upset and why people are protesting? Alon, first, uh, thank you to you and to Sarah and PolitiFest for letting me be here. And absolutely, uh, I think we all have to stop and, and, and listen. And I, I don't think listening has been the best trait in America when it comes to criminal justice reform. And as the, you just pointed out with some statistics, we just have to look as well. And we, we can see that there's a need for us to stop and listen. So, so in, the, in the wake of, of the George Floyd protests, you actually did something that I, I didn't see other AGs do, which is you stepped out and you outlined a number of key facets as you saw as, a, as integral to criminal justice reform. Can you outline those and, and perhaps your role as an AG in, in helping see some of these come to fruition? Yeah, and let me put them in context. So I want everyone yeah. to understand. Um, 
my sense, and this is my sense, uh, I won't speak for everyone, but from the perspective of someone who does law enforcement and who does the legal work required for people, my sense is there are three overriding goals that we should have. One is to improve our use of force policies when, when we have to have law enforcement, our public safety personnel, take action to make the peace, provide the peace, improve that use of force criteria. Secondly, and I think your statistics speak to this, we really have to address bias in policing. And this is a longstanding issue. This didn't just occur around the time George Floyd was killed. This has been around for a long time. In fact, it's probably what has infected policing and made it difficult to have good use of force practices. I mean, not necessarily policy, but practices. Then the final thing I think we have to sort of really cluster around is this need to increase our accountability and transparency in policing. And so that way, all of us can make judgment based on the same evidence and the same standards. And so this way, if someone has a concern about what was done in a particular instance, we can all sort of agree that the facts speak for themselves on whether this was a case of bad policing or not. And so if we can deal with those three sort of clusters, I think we can get to a real good place. What specifically did we call, did I call for several months back? Easy stuff. Intervene to stop excessive force. So if you've got a partner exceeding what is necessary to bring a situation under control and is using excessive force, you, you really should intervene. You just can't stand and watch, which essentially I think a lot of us from the video seem to believe happened in the case of George Floyd. So stop and intervene. Okay, secondly, uh, I probably go farther on this than some others in uh, law enforcement go, ban chokehold. We do that, everyone is agreeing to go there. But I go farther into saying, move towards policies that take you away from placing someone in a body position that could cut off the flow of blood or oxygen, which is, again, what we've seen cause uh, really difficult circumstances. And again, I understand there, you got to look at the circumstances because if a guy is really fighting you, you may have not have any choice but to do certain things. But you, it should be a, at a, as a matter of course that you're trying to not cut off a blood or airflow. Deescalate. I mean, that's a pretty easy one. Before you go all the way to think about using your firearm, can you deescalate the situation so you can use less force? Again, here, proportionality. You're going after somebody uh, who's trying to escape you. Uh, you know, do you need to use your firearm if the person doesn't have a weapon? Uh, verbal warnings. You really should make every effort, and sometimes it's not possible, but there should be every effort made to make sure you're informing someone. Stop. We're the police. You make, make it clear so there's no misunderstanding and the subject won't make the wrong move. Deadly force as a, a last resort. I think that's sort of implied in the other things I've been saying. Come on, let's make sure that you have no other choice. Again, that depends on the circumstances. And finally, one that we have proposed that I, I don't think others have thought so much about because it doesn't, it's not the person-to-person -person type interaction. It's the use of police dogs, uh, which can sometimes be very dangerous. And instead of using them to find and bite uh, a subject, Use them to bark and bite. So use the dogs in a way that gets you your subject without 
using the dogs as a weapon to harm the subject. Those are some of the things that we call for. We can get into some of the accountability issues that we call for, for example, whether we could be able to certify and decertify officers in our uh, police forces, whether we can expand the capacity to review uh, how a police agency operates, whether we can examine their control techniques on what they use. But I think, I think I've given you a general idea of what right, we propose. Right. One of the things that we talk about so important to this is this accountability quotient, right? Because that's really the backstop, you know? There's a lot of police departments out there that already have great policies, but that has not stopped officers from jumping to that use of force. And then as you, as you, as you see, there's not a lot of recourse. The other thing is, and you mentioned this, is transparency, right? Just knowing what your uh, departments are doing. As a reporter, I have to say that police are, have not been the most forthcoming. Your office fought the release of misconduct files when that was signed into law by the governor. I mean, when you say transparency, what do you mean, or did you have a change of heart as things have changed? And Alana, I'm, gl- I, I, I'm glad you brought that up because I have responsibilities to everyone, not just to peace officers or consumers. I, I have a right to protect people's privacy. California has moved towards further disclosure of agency records when an officer engaged in some conduct with, that might be questionable or has committed harms. And so that disclosure now required by uh, legislation that passed a year ago. It wasn't clear, two things weren't clear about the legislation, just through the plain language of the legislation, whether it meant to apply moving forward so that from now on, you must start to disclose records that you start collecting that otherwise would have been private or if it also included records beforehand, so acting for cases that already occurred that had been held private by law. And then secondly, for us at the Department of Justice, because we're the essentially the main storage place for a lot of police records, every agency sends us data. We don't, we've never seen a kit the case. We've never seen the incident or the officers or the subject, but they send us that data. And that's how we give you these macro, this macro data that can be used to make the statistics, uh, come up with the statistics you mentioned. So for us, there were two questions. Does it apply looking backward? We weren't sure. And so to protect the privacy of people who, who, were, who had that information protected before, we said, courts, please tell us what you think. We informed the court that we thought it, it applied going backwards, but we can't make a mistake because, because as I said, it's, when it comes to your privacy and my privacy, I get only one chance to do it right. If I let it go and I was wrong, too late. I can't get it back. And so once, once we heard from the court, yes, it goes backwards, we disclosed all the records that we had. We're still in court right now trying to figure out if we have to also be in charge of the records of the 400 or so other police agencies in the state we have no idea what they have in those records, including very personal private information. And so that's what we're fighting. But when it comes to transparency, we've already disclosed and we're all for that. Right, but I, I also have to say that the police, con- in, in a contextualization of law enforcement, police have been under a lot of scrutiny. And since 9-11 in particular, they have really turned very secretive. I think at the very least, right, when you, when you fight things like transparency laws, I, I think it's a bad look if you don't explain yourself that well. And I think a lot of people raise a lot of eyebrows when we talk about transparency and then we directly kind of point back to these incidents where we see cops. I mean, I put in public information requests as an investigative reporter all the time. And a lot of this stuff is not even damning to the police, but there is a, is a, a level of, we just want to shut it down because we're so afraid of the scrutiny. 
how do you how do you balance that line between we need to see what this government entity is doing one that can take away life liberty and property and does so regularly and at the same time protecting the criminal investigations and the sensitive information how how do you do that in this era well in a way you do it we do it the way you all have done it and that way i hope i can convince folks the way we have done it you all have as as our the press you have every right and every responsibility to go out there and be aggressive, be hounds to get out that information, to require that transparency. I have a responsibility as a chief law enforcement officer in the state to make sure our laws are all enforced. And I can't pick and choose which ones, and I can't pick and choose how. If there is a privacy law that exists, I have to respect that and enforce it. If a, a law subsequently comes in and changes some of that, but it's questionable about whether it's retroactive or not, I have to continue to protect privacy until I'm told otherwise. Otherwise, I'm letting go of your or my private information on a hunch. And so I, I don't blame the press or, or, uh, or advocates for uh, police reform for saying, Basira was holding on to information that he shouldn't have. Until I hear a judge tell me I can let it go, I have to continue to respect the laws. But you all have a right and a responsibility to hound me in, for, for explanation. That's why, by the way, not long ago, post our training center for the state of California for peace officers, right? Disclosed information, which by law must be kept private because it includes a lot of information on a lot of people who may never become peace officers, but very private information post accidentally revealed that to a, a what was a, a, a media outlet that media outlet said, Hey, we're going to, we look at all this information, including of, of some people who are not the most upstanding citizens. And I had to send a letter to that organization saying, by the way, under California law, anyone in possession of that information is in violation of the law, including you, even if you got it accidentally. So I, I did what I was supposed to do the law and let them know. I was then accused, of course, of threatening prosecution of a, a press outlet for having information. I, don't, I was just doing my job. I mean, I like the fact that I had to do that to the press, but I have to at least inform them that they're in possession of information that no one's supposed to have except a few state agencies, and that's it. It was never meant to be disclosed. But that's the fact of life. I still have to uh, enforce the law. Right, right. Well, I mean, so I think, right, when you talk about transparency, I think, yeah, like, I think I think we're just going to be at odds, right? We're just going to have this antagonistic relationship and that's just the way it is. Actually, um, no, think, think of it this way. <laughs> it's not antagonistic. You all are doing your job. You're, you're, you're pushing the envelope because there may be a, a, an instance where an agency is withholding for no valid reason. Right, right, right. And, and, I, and I, think, I think, like I said, you're, you're towing this kind of interesting line here. But at the same time, I have to admit that like, I'm just going to tell you as, as, as a human being, as a black person, you're going to be fighting an uphill battle on this if you're trying to talk about criminal justice reform. And a lot of people are saying, we can't even see what the police are doing. I, I think I would like to move on to the next question, though, because we need to talk about black and brown communities, because this is very important to me specifically. Yeah. When we are talking about criminal justice reform and we, and we add in the level of black and brown devastation that has occurred. At the end of the day, we're really talking about racism, right? Like we could try to say criminal justice reform, but really we're talking about racism as it's being enacted by a particular government entity. One of the things that has been brought up by a lot of historians as of late is that when we look at 
modern policing, we see a lot of its historical roots found in things like slave patrols and an enforcement of black codes. We see this, I mean, this is the same system that at one time enforced Jim Crow laws. Do you think it's, do you think we are able to ever divorce the racism out of something that had so much of its foundational heritage rooted in that? That's, that's where we go back to that point I made about bias. I don't know if we will ever get it completely out. Look at where we are in our politics today in, in this election for president. I mean, uh, I think for many of us, probably for you, probably for me, I just don't get it how a guy who is out there who cannot denounce a white supremacy is still getting close to 40% of the vote. It's there. And we have to under, try to understand it better. But what I would simply say is we just have to keep working to root it out and understand it. And that's where the more we do the work to extract the bias, to train on it. To, so you, people, some people just don't believe that they're being biased and we have to sort of get them to understand what this really means. It's going to be a long road because as you said, this, this goes back to the founding of the country. I have to come out and say, you know, when you, when we bring up these stats about what's been happening in the black and brown communities, right? And we see the disproportionate policing and we're talking about a community of people that where, where men are gone out of that neighborhood forever uh, through death or through just incarceration. And a lot of people, it, we can't even have communication with the cops because a lot of people say, you've destroyed our communities. Does the state at any point owe these black and brown communities a, an apology for this devastation? Uh, well, I, I hope we go beyond just talking about saying I'm sorry. I hope we talk about actually making the investments that remove that obstacle for families and communities to be able to move ahead. And, and you know, the, I remember back in 1993 when I was a member of Congress, first, first term member of Congress, we had that, that infamous or famous crime bill that came up that's been talked about so much. What folks forget is that the crime bill we voted on was not the crime bill that was crafted in the Judiciary Committee. I was on the Judiciary Committee. That crime bill consisted of the apprehension component, you know, the crime prevent, uh, the crime apprehension going after bad, bad guys. Right. The incarceration, locking up those who were bad people and were convicted. But it also had, before the two of those, prevention. It talked about, let's keep young, mostly men, we knew mostly men of color, from getting onto that track. What happened in that crime bill was the prevention portion essentially got erased from the bill. That's why a lot of us ended up voting against it. I took a lot of heat for that because I was, they said I was against, you know, against uh, public safety. No, it's just that you can't do the two others well without the first one, which is the prevention. And so we have to be willing to invest. Remember in those days, the, the thing that torpedoed the, the prevention portion was midnight basketball. What? We're going to use taxpayer dollars to pay for these hoodlums, these hood, you know, these bad guys to be playing basketball at midnight. They should be in bed, blah, 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 blah. That, that's what we got hit on. And before you know it, we lost the support for the prevention side. No, we got to invest in things that keep kids on the right track. That, and that will help you avoid the circumstance where you've got a whole bunch of kids who have nothing to do. And you've got a whole bunch of officers who haven't been trained to deal with bias. And then powder cake explodes.
Yeah, let's kind of talk about this because, you know, when we talk about criminal justice reform, right, a lot of police departments and law enforcement leaders, they have responded with ideas for tactical reform, right, which is the how police interact with society. These are things like we're going to, you know, de-escalation, chokeholds, like let's, let's try to reduce going to the gun as a first resort. But what I don't see is a lot of strategic conversation, which is more of the why police are interacting with society. And I'm going to be frank with you, because there's no way to kind of have a friendlier SWAT raid. There's no way to shake down people, black people for petty offenses nicely. Why are we having that conversation? And isn't that should we be directing our energies into? So let me challenge you a bit, Alana, on that one, because I, I, I hear what you're saying. But here's how I would look at it. When that 911 call comes in, something's going on in, in our neighborhood or in our apartment complex. No one's saying, hey, and make sure that we have dealt with the policies that make sure that we are treating people right. No, people want someone to take care of their safety because they're scared they're calling 911. And what happens is the cruiser arrives, officers show up, the encounter occurs. No one's thinking at that point, what should have been the policy that that police agency should have had with regard to training its officers, with regard to responding to incidents? At that point, it's, what do we do? Right, right. So but let's back say, up. Let's, let's back up. I'm sorry, because I, I think we're kind of going in the wrong direction. The question that I have more so is, is more so like, we know that police departments, for instance, use traffic stops as leverage for drug arrest and to run people for warrants. We see a lot of interactions of black people just walking down the street and it's like, these are minor infractions and then they escalate. And we have to ask a question of, well, why are the police even doing this work anyway? When I first started off with these stats, I said that about 80% of the arrests, these 4.9 million arrests police make over the year are for, for low level offenses. So is the question that I'm saying is, should we be thinking more about the types of things that police are policing in the first place, rather than sending them out to all these tasks and duties that, that maybe just aren't really what the community needs right now? Yes. And so California, as you're probably aware, we now have a law that requires all those stops, all those contacts by officers to be recorded. Because we're trying to figure out if there really is a case of uh, profiling going on. Are, right. are officers really doing this, this stop? because they're going after that black guy or that Latino guy? Right. Or is it, is it really that it was a required stop? And so we're trying, policy-wise, we're trying to deal with the practical implementation of the law. And that's what I was trying to do is separate those because we can do some things on the policy side. And the, our Racial and Identity Profiling Act now gives us that opportunity because every law enforcement agency in California gradually, right now, the majority of uh, police officers in the state have to report. Soon all the smaller agencies will have to include their officers. So every contact that's made by a, an officer, peace officer in California, will be recorded. And then we're going to start having this, the, the data that you and others will use to say, ah, in L.A., they're handling this this way. Or, oh, or in Auburn, they're doing it the wrong way. You know, we'll be able to use real hard data instead of the anecdotal story. And that's what's going to make the difference in trying to come up with the the policies on how we actually do policing. But, but I have to say, we, we have a lot of data. In fact, someone actually just dropped this in here. We don't need more data. I dropped a bunch of data. When is it the point that law enforcement's gonna take the data 
pull back and say, we need to have a strategic look about our application instead of relying on guys like me and academics to wait till things go wrong. As a black person, I'm going to take off my reporter hat here. As a black person, I don't want to get killed by the cops. I don't want to wait for them to collect more data and, and so I could be a stat in that data block. When are, we, when are police going to kind of take charge of their own destinies, right, and really start thinking about what they're doing? So whoever said we, we have enough data, we don't need more, let me, let me challenge that. And I, I don't know if this is going to be a good way of sort of discussing this, but Breonna Taylor is no longer alive. And the grand jury has issued its decision not to charge. Now, let me, let me ask you this. If we had data from Louisville, Kentucky, talking about how many instances officers have used that, that type of warrant and the questionable whether it was no, uh, no, no knock or knock, if we had a pattern established through data that showed that the police in that city constantly use that same method, I guarantee you it would have been far more difficult to have any grand jury come out with the result that it did recently. I, I mean, I, I say that, but one thing, for instance, is there's a Princeton study, the 2018 study that showed, that looked at SWAT use, and it found three very important things. It found that SWAT use did not have any impacts on police safety, it had no impacts on crime, and it actually drove a wedge through communities. I read all these types of things, and I interview a lot of police chiefs, a lot of law enforcement officers. They are never tuned into that type stuff. And that's kind of frustrating for me as a reporter, as a black person. What they are tuned into, however, is more the kinetic elements, right? I could talk to them about, you know, spit bags and new techniques and tactics all day. And, and as a, I was a former cop, and as I know, right, that that's what we talked about. But like, as a reporter, there is never this kind of strategic interest in that. So, so I, I do find that kind of frustrating. How do you get police departments to be more interested in this type of high level instead of this kind of, you know, knocking heads interest, right? That, that's been culturally kind of endemic in law enforcement. Yeah, we, we have to teach the best practices. Here's the thing though, Juan. How do you establish what a best practice is? Again, have to have data. You have to have some practical information that helps you as you get to each fork of the road. Say, you got to go this way. Got to go that way. You know, and if you're just going on your hunch or on your own experience, and if you're talking about agencies that aren't real good at detecting bias, which fork in the road do you think they'll be taking? I'd rather have the information on which fork in that road to take based on hard data, not your hunch, not some guy has been around for generations doing this with his you know, family. I want data to tell me which fork in the road we take. And, and then it won't be you know, some pragmatic uh, agency talking about how it's done it for the last 40 years. It'll be based on data. And because otherwise it's always gonna be, he said, you said. And there's no guarantee who will win. I don't want it to be he said, she said. I want it to be the data said. And then we go. So for a lot of people in these communities that have been devastated and stuff, they, they say, I'm done with these conversations. I don't want to talk about how police can be different. I, I want them defunded. I just don't want them around. Do you think that there's a solution into, in that? Or what do you think when you hear about defunding the police? Yeah, I, um, I hear the real frustration, the, the anger. I, I hear the agony. 
because you think about what people are saying if they're saying defund the police. Defund the folks that you might have to call on a 911 call to come help you. Defund the people who patrol the neighborhoods to make sure that folks are safe, businesses are safe. It's got to be pretty powerful, a feeling, for someone to say defund the police. I, again, I always ask people to define for me what they mean by defund the police. I, I don't believe it means defund the public safety personnel who are supposed to keep your kids and our families safe. I, well, I think what they're saying is defund a system that hasn't listened to all communities on what makes us safe and how we can trust that you'll make us safe. That's absolutely legitimate and appropriate. And that's why I said at the very beginning of this conversation, it's we got to stop, we got to listen, and we got to look at the facts. When we talk about listening and stuff here, and we saw, and I have to say, I, I was hurt by it because like when we saw the protest happen, the, the, the protest in the wake of George Floyd was a kind of a criminal justice nightmare. We saw just a lot of protesters who were even peaceful, just having a, this violent police response. When you saw that, what did you see and why did, why did that happen in the way that that happened? Uh, I, I saw communities and officials who had not prepared for any eventuality. I, I remember when we started to hear what was happening in Oregon, I contacted a lot of our local leaders uh, in, for example, the Bay Area, uh, and said, have you reached out to the community leaders, uh, you know, whether it was Oakland or San Francisco, have you reached out to the community leaders to talk to them? Because some of those protests are, gonna go, are going on in California, not as we've seen in, in Portland, but you know, at any point, something could happen. Have you reached out to the community leaders who probably want to manifest their, their real grief about what's happening in America, but without having to turn violent? Have you reached out? Because if you don't, guess what? If something happens, how are the folks who are supposed to keep the peace going to be able to distinguish? And what you don't want is to confuse what is uncivil and unlawful with what is civil and very lawful. And so I think we have to work harder to give people the space to exercise their constitutional rights. But I, at the same time, I think people have to recognize the law is the law. And if you are vandalizing, if you are disrupting, if you are lighting fires, you are not engaged in lawful conduct. And we have laws that require us to pursue you. And so I, I don't think there's, there's any, you know, there's no, a gray area there. And I just don't want folks to be, to feel like their, their constitutional right to express themselves will be confined because all of a sudden the local enforcement authorities are going to enforce the peace. Right. But, but at the same time, we saw a lot of videos that like their people are police protesting the police and the police are pepperballing people who are not even doing anything. They're arresting, like, like we, we saw the sorting crisis play out. I mean, I guess the question that I have for you as someone who's been in law enforcement and been in government for so long is that do you think policing has fundamentally changed? I mean, there's a statistic by Riley Balco that showed that like SWAT deployments since the 1970s to 2014 have increased by 15,000%. We see MRAPs out on the streets. This is something that's an MRAP for people who don't know is armored, an armored vehicle. Like we saw this stuff. Does that not disappoint you that we've kind of... Yeah. That we think as a society, we have to use military 
armament to control our citizens. Yeah, uh, the MRAPs were not invented to deal with your civilian population. Yeah, it absolutely concerns me. It concerns me that we're using technology in ways that would distress the founders of, of our nation. The invasiveness of what technology allows and the intensity upon which it can land on us. Absolutely. You know, I always mention to folks, when I was, I was still a teenager, my friends and I, I, I was pulled over. I was stopped, driving stopped. You know, I had done nothing. Officer checked us out, asked all sorts of questions. Eventually, he let us go. I was, you know, too young to recognize that I, I was stopped unconstitutionally. But I also have to acknowledge that I wasn't the victim of a, of a result that we've seen in too many other cases. And so it, it's one of those things where we have to realize that on the ground, the Constitution unfolds in less than perfect ways. And what you have to do, and certainly what I have to do, is get us as close to perfection as we can when it comes to those constitutional rights. It's tough. It's, it's messy, but we have to get there. And when it comes to the use of force, when it comes to the use of technology, we, we in, in government owe it to the people to not abuse of those tools because they can be taken away from us or should be taken away from us if we abuse them. So I, I have to bring up one of the things, because this is what I report on a lot, which is simply the, what I'll call the criminal justice industrial complex, right? The, a lot of people don't understand that there are a lot of stakeholders. There are consultants, gear manufacturers, sellers of technology. A, a lot of these guys have a vested interest in criminal justice reform, and it doesn't always align with the public. Are you concerned of these the, this kind of industry now that has weight in the criminal justice space. Oh, no doubt. When, when the dollar drives our decisions, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. I, 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 think, I think the theme of this whole thing was, you know, choose your own future. From California's top cop, in 10 or 20 years, how do you envision policing looking? And, and, how, do you, and how do you think it should look? So I... I I would hope that in 10 to 20 years, every agency has gone through a top-down review of its policies and protocols and understands that it's, it's got to go through that cleansing cycle all the time. So you're constantly looking for ways to get to the best practices that are out there. So you're always a learning machine. You're, you're never falling too far behind. Secondly, I hope we recognize, and this sort of gets to the idea of defund police, because that's not something I could ever support. We recognize what law enforcement, our public safety personnel do and do well, and what they don't do or shouldn't do, because they don't do, do it well. And here, a quick example is homelessness. If someone who is homeless, and you, there's a call that comes in 911, hey, some homeless guy is hanging out, and we're not sure if he's trying to do something or not. Chances are he's just homeless, but who gets called? It, you, don't, you don't have the mental health worker or the social worker or the uh, substance abuse worker who goes out. It's the, it's the cop. And more often than not, if something happens, if the person is having an episode, things can get off. And then all of a sudden it's an incident, a, a police incident. So I hope in 10 or 20 years, we're really not asking cops to do the work of social workers. 
We're not, because they're not trained to be social workers or mental health workers or substance abuse workers. Let's have them do public safety work. And so let's not put the burden on our men and women in uniform to do that. And put the money where we should to deal with these things the way it rightfully should. And if we do that, then I think if we're training right, and we're keeping them up to, up to speed with best practices, then I think we're going to get to what I think a lot of the folks who talk about defunding police are really talking about. And that is having a public safety system that has the use of force be the last resort because we're attacking these issues. Maybe attacking is not the right way. We're approaching these issues by dealing with what's in front of us, homelessness, addiction, mental health, and not everything as if it's a crime. So, so you said you understand defund the police, but you, you would never support that. But you also asked for more money to be added into this criminal justice system. Where does this money supposed to, to, to come from? And, and, and also if law enforcement duties are essentially pared down by all these other services, why would cops need the, the same amount of cash that they need now? So let me give you a quick example. Bill was just passed, became law that now will uh, give to the Department of Justice in California the uh, authority and the responsibility to investigate and potentially prosecute any police incident where it's an officer involved shooting of an individual who is unarmed, as, as, as unarmed is defined in, in that law. I'm going to need a, a ton of money to do that because I don't have the personnel and the operations and resources to do investigations the way the local agencies do right now, police and DA prosecutors. I'm being asked to do what 58 different district attorneys throughout the state and some 400 police agencies throughout the state do right now, but I'm gonna need money to do that if I'm gonna do it for the entire state. So I, I don't have to do it, but if I'm gonna be called upon to do it, I'm gonna need money. It, and so we need to invest in these things if we want them to be done right. Right. I, 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 I want to come back, though, and say that, you know, we look at law enforcement budgets and they're, and they're crazy. They're crazy expensive. And I'm going to hit you with the reporter tactic. Right. Law enforcement is always like is like we need more resources to do this because we don't have the resources. But that's not the framing. The framing is you have the resources. You decided to spend it on something else. Police have decided to spend it on other stuff, right? And, and why not just readjust, right? From the military, right? Just readjust. We don't have to readjust, okay? Why is it the case that police are always asking for, for more money? They have a lot of money. Since the 1990s, crime rates have, violent crime rates have trended downwards. They have the most, they're the most technologically advanced law enforcement entity that we've ever had in American history. Why do we need to keep on putting money towards this? So you're probably not going to like my answer here. <laughs> let me, let, first, I think, uh, you know, in California, at least, we are in a different place than from some other states when it comes to our men and women in uniform. Uh, everybody's got bad apples. Politics, we've got folks about it. Press, you've got people who are bad apples. Same in policing, right? And by the way, my division of law enforcement, it's a small operation compared to most state aid, uh, law enforcement agencies. And we do work statewide. So we're not day to day on the street. We're doing a lot of the investigative work. We're out there removing guns from the hands of dangerous people. We're doing specialized things. Let me tell you, they do phenomenal work. We have been doing for more than a decade, the removal of weapons under the only state in the nation has a law that says that we have a right to confiscate a weapon from someone who is armed and prohibited. 
You may have had a right before, but you lost the right because you became a felon or because you're a domestic violence guy. Uh, we can remove that arm, uh, uh, firearm from you. We've done that for over a decade. Yeah. And never once has anyone gotten hurt. And it's, this isn't re removing your weapon or my weapon. It's removing a weapon from someone who's considered dangerous. That's tough work. And I want to I want to tell you right now, because I know that there are a lot of folks who are very down on people who are in police, uh, police forces. And you've heard it said before, but it's really true. There are men and women who go above and beyond. And, uh, you know, just as I won't paint every person in the media as bad because of something that, or every politician, let's not do the same for police. There's some men and women who do this job so very well. And so what I'd say to you is, if, and this is where you part you won't like about the answer about the funding. You come in and I'll let you take a look at my budget and what we do. And you tell me where we're wasting money. And okay. I'll, I'll, okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> like as a reporter i'm like yo bring it like yeah. but i mean one of the right. things we talk right. about is like government services right is that and as a cop it's so interesting because when police are in trouble right the first thing we do is we talk about good apples and bad apples and we go into this moral stance yeah no other profession has to do that and you know and and as a reporter, I actually started dealing with like just stats and the stats are pretty plain. According to the FBI's latest clearance rates, police clear about 45.5% of violent crimes, about 17 point, I think it's 17% for property crime. So if you have your stuff stolen, it's probably not coming back. When we talk about good or bad, I don't, I don't know what we mean. I, I, I think we should more so evaluate what we know of that the whole system, right? I think there's good or bad people in every system, but the system right now is obviously doing devastating work to communities of color. I think that is kind of the thing that really, I just don't think that's a defense anymore. Let me just a real quick point, because I, I hear what you're saying, and let me put some more meat on that bone. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, if you have a, a kid who grows up in a neighborhood and then becomes a cop for that neighborhood, I. I can't prove it to you because I don't have the data, but anecdotally, I'd probably tell you that that officer probably will use force and violence less than some officer who's unfamiliar with the neighborhood and is just doing his job patrolling five days a week. Could we get to a point where our officers understand the community better? Absolutely, we could. We could get more officers of color. We could get more women on the force. We could get them to live closer to what the, the places they're patrolling. We can get them to get out of their cruisers to get to know people. You know, all those things, as they always say, it's hard to be mean to a friend. The more you know people, the more you're going to try to be good with them. And uh, the more you're, you're less likely you're going to try to use a weapon if you're trying to, you know, pursue someone in a neighborhood you've grown up in. And uh, unfortunately, we, we don't create the circumstance. So what happens is you have the situation that develops where, too often, an officer who only works in the neighborhood but doesn't really know the neighborhood is chasing someone down who he's never met, and sometimes bad things happen. It's too late to try to reform it if you're waiting till the three seconds before the shots are fired. You got to do it way before. Way ahead. Way ahead. If there is one thing that you think that the public doesn't understand about policing that should, one thing that you had to communicate to the public right now, what, what would you say to them? You cannot easily Monday morning quarterback the usually less than 20 seconds that it takes when shots are fired. It, it, you just can't. 
because if for almost every human being, it's just a, it's a, it's part of our innate being, you know, your, your, your juices, your adrenaline is flowing at that point, whether you're the subject that's being pursued or if you're the officers, it is almost impossible. And again, I'm speaking as personally, I'm not a scientist, but I would tell you that it's almost impossible to make clear judgments, Monday morning quarterback, the seconds before shots are fired, which to me, and this is what I've tried to tell everyone who, who moved, moves to try to do police reform. Please try not to focus on just the seconds when the shots were fired and someone is down and unfortunately sometimes killed. We're going to have our greatest effect if we deal with everything I just finished saying before. The early stages, before that guy gets trained to be an officer, what's your training methodology? What's, what's your protocol? Let's do everything that leads up so that when you've got an officer who gets in those, that situation where it's 20 seconds, that officer has had so much training, so much practice, so much guidance that he's using all those best practices that we want. And so that way it, it becomes clear, the data, the facts will show what happened in those 20 seconds. A reasonable person will say, that was going to happen. Right now, I think too many people say, a reasonable person would not have expected George Floyd to have died. And a reasonable person would say, you're right. And that's unfortunately where we are today in policing in America. Mr. AG, you have a uphill battle. I, I do not envy. I, I wish you success on pushing up some of these reforms. Thank you for coming and speaking with us so candidly about this. Alana, I hope you all, everyone will push aggressively. Use your rights, use your voice. Make us change, make us do the right things, but work with us. Work with those of us who have the tools and are given the opportunity and the authority. We got to get somewhere. At the end of the day, people want results. You got to deliver something. And I, 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 I will tell you how I feel. I will tell you if I think you're wrong, but don't close the door to me because I've said that. Let's work together because that's the only, listen, that cop could, way back when I was 17 years old, could have done something to me. And I might've been telling you something differently if I was still around. But I could talk to you now as the attorney general for the state of California and talk to you about how I was, I was profiled and stopped. And now it's my chance to go out there and enforce the racial and identity profiling law that we have. So things change. It's just that we gotta work together making change. Thank you. Thank you for, for talking with us on this. I appreciate it. I think uh, conversations like this are, are kind of rare to have in like the criminal justice space, but I think that it informs a lot of people and I appreciate you coming on and talking with us on it. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this bonus episode of the Voice of San Diego podcast. We'll be dropping more conversations from PolitiFest here soon, so make sure you're subscribed to this feed so you don't miss them. Our regular show will happen on Friday like usual with Scott Lewis and Sarah Libby. If you missed PolitiFest, but there were things that you really wanted to catch, you can still watch a lot of sessions from PolitiFest. Just go to politifest.org. I'm Nate John. Talk soon.